Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is James O'Day. He is the award-winning author of Cultivating Peace. He is a lead faculty for the Shift Network's acclaimed Global Peace Ambassador Training. He has conducted frontline social healing dialogues around the world for many years. He is the former president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and he was Washington Office Director of Amnesty International and the CEO of the SEVA Foundation. He's a member of the Evolutionary Leaders Group founded by Deepak Chopra and is on several advisory boards such as the Peace Alliance um, and Cosmos Journal. He's followed extensively in social media and, of course, lectures widely. James grew up in Ireland and England, and he now lives in Colorado, and he's just come out with a new memoir and an astonishingly powerful book called The Conscious Activist, where activism meets mysticism. It was just released today, and James, first of all, I would like to welcome you. Welcome. Thank you, And tell me, what is the importance of today's date for you? Today's date is very, very important date because it's International Human Rights Day. This is the day that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was signed. When we moved out of the cataclysm of the Second World War and we said, no more. We are now going to create universal principles for all human beings. No one will be left out. There will be no lesser categories of human beings. And so the principles of protection and promotion of human rights and the Universal Declaration are commemorated every year on Human Rights Day. And I have dedicated much of my adult life to the promotion of human rights and the evolving story of what it means to be a human rights activist and a spiritual seeker. You seem to have been wired from childhood to become both an activist and a mystic. What made you want to enter a seminary at such a tender age and then run away from it? (laughs) Yes, indeed. I'm one of those people who strongly believes, because it's based in my own experience, in the spiritual reality that children can experience. And I certainly experienced the spiritual realm very intensely as a young boy in Ireland. I remember at one point you know, on my night prayers, kneeling to God, saying, I, I really can't believe in you if you don't free the devil from hell at some point. Because nobody could be that bad that they could be punished for all eternity. And I, I like to kind of wittily in, in, intimate that it was that prayer that somehow the divine response was, well, okay, well, let's give him a priestly vocation. I say in the book, I owe so much to the Catholic Church 
for the intensity of those early experiences. And I begged my parents, you know, they said, you were far too young. And I said, no, I, I must go. And I can tell you, Miriam, as truthfully as I could say anything in my life, those first year at the seminary was spiritual elixir. The times of silence, the early morning mass before breakfast, the rigors that even they asked children to participate in were truly formative for my spiritual reality. And it is a complex question when you ask me, well, how did this fall apart so that after a few years, you're no, you're no longer in this mystical state of communion with the divine, but you were, you were robbing the school bank and making <laughs> up the night. And you know, I, I say in the book, and I say, still say, there are some linear explanations that we could go into but they really don't add up. It was some sort of deep impulse that said the only way I can walk through this is if I face it alone, if I break my ties with the church, if I set out to discover who I really am. And in that awkward and, and immature way, this was my way of doing it. It was like, walking out on the, uh, on, onto an empty canvas and, and, and inviting the reality to speak to me. And of course what that was, was a fall from grace. And there you have it, you know, the spiritual reality of the child, so deep, so beautifully innocent in its own way. And then the fall from grace, it's like meeting a wall. It's the first real deep response of the universe that says, now are you really ready? Because you're shallow, you're weak, you're, you're not as strong as you thought you were, you're not as committed. And so the fall from grace can be a gift in its own way. You can say, wake up, you know, wake up to who you really could be and listen much more deeply to the universe about who you are. And in my case, that fall from grace, you know, my mother had severe heart palpitations when she heard of my escape, <laughs> my way. And I broke my heart because I was so close to my mother. She was really my spiritual mentor. And the thought that I had hurt her was a grievous wound to me. It woke me up in some way more than anything else. That I could hurt another human being was unfathomable to me when my intentions were not that way. And not long after that fall from grace and, and that sense of loss of the paradisal realm of childhood spirituality. My energy and my moral attention turned to activism. Mm -hmm. 
you know, as you describe your um, time in the seminary, uh, I'm reflecting on childhood nowadays where there is no such thing as silence except in communion with a small screen in front of one. Um, children nowadays seem to be isolated from those experiences in nature, in solitude. It's all engaging. Do you think that that perhaps plays a role? Um, or or what, what role do you think that might play in what we're seeing in children today? I think you've hit a very significant point. Somehow, tuning into one's own soul, tuning, finding that, that there is an inner reality and a depth universe inside of us can be tremendously facilitated by silence, by contact with nature, by just walking alone, being silent. And you know this frenetic universe of busyness and and media attention and myriad things that can attract a child and distract a child, pull them away from a sense of their own core. And it's really for the mystical path. It is the journey to that core. It's a belief. It's a sense. It's an intuition. There's a territory within you so deeply alive, more alive than anything you know, and you have to go towards that. And and that journey can certainly and certainly does begin in childhood. So I think you've hit a, a sounding note there. We need to help our children cultivate that contact with their own core. And that also means as parents and adults and teachers, we have to respect that core. We have to honor the autonomy of that core. We have to call it out. I sometimes say, who is the person when you were age seven who really saw you, who saw deep into that core? and who called you forth. Who is the one who said to you, you can't hide from me. Come out of hiding. I see you, and I'm going to expect so many things of you because I see your death. And you're you're called forth by the deep friend, the knowing grandmother or whoever it is, who calls you forth. And that parallel to the call of spirit itself, calling you back to this wider, more spacious, more profound universe of source. Do you think we all have the seeds of a mystic inside us? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. A thousand times yes. (laughs) We are all, you know, of the same design. There is no lesser human being. We're all part of that oneness, and how we experience that is the trick, is the journey. And you know, what I say in the Conscious Activist is that there, 
really is a kind of curriculum for the mystic in understanding and finding that core. And there really is a curriculum for the activist in going out to surrender their life to moral principles and improving and transforming the world so that those two paths can come together. In fact, in your book, you are making a very strong plea for integrating those two paths. How did you um, get this revelation that that is something that must happen? Well, I don't think it comes too easily. As, as you can see in my life's journey, I, I did activism as a teenager in London on behalf of senior citizens and, and really began to help bring their plight to public attention. And at one point I was awarded a Teenager of the Year award. And you were so precocious. <laughs> and I got a lot of media attention. And then a senior government, I don't know whether it was, I just can't remember the letter, but I know it was a very senior government official who wrote to me. And my mother was so impressed with this envelope when it arrived at the house. And in the envelope, the letter said, you know, it seems that you have a serious critique of the government's treatment of senior citizens. I would appreciate it if you would come and discuss your concerns with me. An open invitation to dialogue. But in my immaturity, in my adolescence, I turned it down and I wrote back to him and said, you know what you need to do and when you do it, we can meet. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, that's the activist high horse, isn't it? Yes. So refusing dialogue is never a good choice. And dialogue, the word dialogue, means dia logos, means through the logos, through the higher mind, through the higher reason with the highest possibility. And so much adolescent behavior, even in our current society, in our current politicians, you know, not just activists riding their high horses, but those who refuse any form of dialogue are really setting the stage for deeper social conflict. So, you know, the, and then on the mystical side, it's almost like you have two different agendas going on. For the activist, it is, wow, look at the imperfection of the world, and how do I clean it up, and how do I make it a more morally you know, balanced world? And for the mystic, it is, how do I reach the perfection of who I am? How do I reach that deep state of acceptance and knowing that the universe is, in its design, all about perfection and perfectibility? Those are two different 
approaches, aren't they? And so to bring them together is really powerful. And, you know, I say in the preface to the book, have you had enough concepts lately? (laughs) That sense of people have all kinds of new and wonderfully exciting ideas. But, you know, are they living them? Are they being them? Are they integrating them? Are they, you know, the activists who are working on, let's say, the XL pipeline, are they bringing their activism at home? That's why I have a chapter that has had an astonishing effect on several people. The chapter on sacrifice, I say, okay, let's bring it home. Let's talk about it on the domestic front. Let's integrate our activism into our domestic lives, into the way we live and live with our children. And I think that's part of the story of really deep integration. And on the mystical side, is integrating all that we know of this deeper divine source of love, this radiant universe of love, and bringing that into the world, not taking our own private transcendental trip to some blissful reality, but bringing it back to a world that is aching for that love. You talk about the uh, the stage of adolescence with all of its passion, uh, the, the, the passion of youth of the activist um, which you experienced uh, more fully than most anyone I've read of Um, and yet at a certain stage you achieved burnout I mean there there is a limit to how much um, human pain and tragedy and despair you can absorb without hitting the wall how did you uh, cope with that? Yes, when I went through the coup d'etat in Turkey and then the war in Lebanon and the massacres and then 10 years of working as the director of the Washington Office of Amnesty, I did meet that, that deep burnout, that sense of you know, personally being fried because every day you wake up to torture, murder, and mayhem. Your attention is focused into the heart of the problem. And I needed to find resolution. I talk about that later in the book. Resolution is so important. Healing is so important. And so... Yes, there was a dramatic moment when the child activist Iqbal Nasi, you know, was murdered just coming up to age 12, and he had been chained to a loom at, I think it was age four and a half, uh, in the carpet industry in Pakistan, and he managed to escape at age eight and started to tell the world about the children who were enslaved to the carpet industry. And he got the Reebok Human Rights Award 
and some months later went back to Pakistan and was murdered. And I, I just reached that moment with that story, a feeling this is it, I can't go on. And you have that from time to time. Mm-hmm. I remember coming home and with our family situation and our three sons, we would each at dinner time go around the table and speak about our day. And I jumped in and said, you know, this child activist was murdered. And one of my sons, who was an ex-top, said, without blinking an eye, an eye, you know, poor, he was only eight years old, and I scored a goal in soccer today. And <laughs> it was just a reminder to me that I couldn't start proselytizing my own family, you know. Mm. I had to find a new, I had to find the healing. I had to find a way in which the world resolves. And I think it's the activist dilemma that leads to burnout. When you study the problem, you can, you can almost be sucked into the entropy of the problem, the endless nature of the problem. And so what I say to activist friends who I mentor, look, study the problem, know the problem, never turn your eyes away from the problems of the world, but put your highest, best energy into resolution, into the solution, into healing, into long-term vision. And so that's really, in my own story, how when I left Amnesty, I really started looking for that healing solution and was part of social healing dialogues for many, many years, bringing people involved in all kinds of levels of work on human rights and abuse, uh, perpetrators and victims, bringing them together in dialogue to uh, to see each other, to, to see what it like, feels like to be heard, to be listened to, to be understood, to feel waves of compassion in a circle of, of hearts awakening to the possibility the truth and forgiveness and reconciliation and restorative justice can forge a new path, a whole new destiny path for humanity. So much of our society is based on a uh, polarized scenario of us versus them, of we have to win this and scoring points as if it's a zero-sum game. Um, It is uh, revelatory that you came to the conclusion that you have to be a part of healing of both perpetrators and victims, not just the victims, and, and to get to the root of human wholeness. What do you think is the path to collective transformation? Uh, yes, indeed, Miriam. I mean, the sense that in those dialogues, when you hear a former Nazi and daughter of Holocaust survivors come to a place of understanding 
deep reconciliation. And, and that doesn't mean that you forgive the act. You know, people sometimes get confused on that question. You forgive the actor. You see <clears throat> the possibility of transformation. And I've been exposed to so many stories like that, Hutu and Tutsi in Rwanda, of Catholic and Protestant. And it just reminds me so profoundly that we do have the capacity to heal from the greatest wounds. And so, Miriam, that question of, you know, what best facilitates social transformation? It is certainly the interruption of the transmission from generation to generation of wounds. There's sometimes historical treasures that are transmitted. They're really wounds. Let us never forget what they did to us. So we keep passing it on. So the interruption of that wounding is done through dialogue, through truth. The truth has many facts. The spiritual person and the mystic know this. There is deep spiritual subjective reality. You can only experience, I know it from the state of inner knowing. And there is, you know, for the activist, there is the truth of the fact. And so we bring those two truths together, the subjective truth and the objective truth. When, when we do that, we have transformational moments like the South African Truth and Reconciliation Group which allowed the truth of emotion, the truth of experience. What did you experience? What was happening for you in the story? That's huge when that's brought into the equation, rather than tell us the facts, tell us what happened to whom, but how did you experience it? What did it mean? How did it devastate your life? How did it change your life? So social transformation is part of that confluence that I'm speaking about, of the inner and the outer coming together in a new way that opens a new destiny path for humanity. When the inner is made sacred, when your experience counts, and what it felt like counts and is honored, is deeply honored, and is listened to, and is heard, wow. Then you have, then you can say, and then let's have the law that we need, that's the enlightened law. The, the laws, as I discovered as a human rights worker, can be great new laws that ban torture, stop execution, stop intimidation of people. But the law is not enough. There has to be the inner movement towards reconciliation. The word healing comes from its root is to make whole. So it's about finding the path to wholeness and inclusion that will 
pave the way for social transformation. And one of the core elements of reconciliation is the ability to forgive. And that seems to be very difficult, very challenging for most people. How do we reach that state? I mean, all of the psychologists say that forgiveness really is for you, not for the perpetrator. It's to remove that core of poison inside your own heart. But still, how do you bring people to that point? Well, I, I think, again, you, you're in the right zone because you know, forgiveness, the, the state of unforgiveness has this toxic brew that keeps burning inside of you, destroying your own peace of mind and your own health. And so, you know, releasing that is essential for you to be able to help you move on, to help you restore health in your life. What a sad thing it is if, you know, the victim state becomes your permanent state and the perpetrator dominates you even after the act of perpetration has been done because you're caught in that very, very deep and difficult brew of unforgiveness. And so help, helping people find that state. But I've, I've done a lot of work, as you can imagine, around forgiveness. And I say to people, you know, make it real. Don't, don't think of it as a formula. There's some specific formula. In one case, in one of my classes, a woman said her uncle was a Catholic priest who was murdered. And it had been some years that she wanted to explore forgiveness with the murderer who was in prison. And she said, I, I find it difficult to think that I can just write a letter saying, I now forgive you. I said, that's right. Why don't you write a letter to him saying, you know, I loved my uncle, and what led you to murder him? And what state are you in now? And, and make it r real so that you're going through a process together where something opens up. You know, Father Michael Lapsley, who I met in dialogue, had his hands blown off, part of his face blown off, by a letter bomb. He was the ANC pastor. And he said to me once, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I know who did this, but I, I can't forgive them in abstraction. You know, I have released those toxic feelings that if they came to me and asked me for forgiveness and they showed willingness to atone, then it would make it real for me. And yet another perspective on that was a young Irish boy who at age nine, I think, or maybe he was nine or ten, around that age, was shot point blank in the face with a rubber bullet 
by a British soldier in Northern Ireland and was blinded. And he said, I have unconditionally forgiven those soldiers because my life has been given such importance because of what happened to me. I was given a voice. My eyes were taken away, but I was given a voice. I've met the Dalai Lama. I've spoken to the British Parliament. Mm. You know, wow. Many, many mm. aspects of forgiveness, but forgiveness is key because it is, as you said at the beginning, it's about letting go of that poison. And if that poison stays, there will be more serious consequences afterwards. You raised a very interesting point earlier um, about the transmission of these stories of ancestral wounding that become part of our self-definition. How do we find or create for ourselves a new definition of who we are if we release those ancestral wounds? I think in the case of, say, Gottfried and Mary, the former Nazi and daughter of Holocaust survivors, he was going through that authentic process of questioning each other and finding, you know, some level of truth together that, that really gave them an opening to be able to say, maybe it, it takes it one by one, because it has to be so real, but one by one, we release the toxins of the past. And when we do, that new identity is an identity that calls us to resolve our remaining issues with each other. Mary, you know, Gottfried you know, said in that dialogue, I, I feel I'm in the abyss of history. My children, my grandchildren, they all call, you know, I'm referred to, uh, they're referred to as the children of the grandchildren of the Nazis. And along comes this woman and she throws a bridge across the abyss for me to walk on. She calls me out of that dungeon. She says, there's a bridge we can both walk on together over the abyss of endless hatred. And Mary, at the end of the dialogue, in a moment that has transfixed my imagination for all time, walked up to the former Nazi, Godfrey, and said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no ill, for thou art with me. There it is, the end of the story. I, sh I shall fear no ill, for thou art with me. You who are my persecutor are now at my side. It is a new story. And it's that new story that requires conjunction of spiritual insight and reality and 
and the willingness and persistence of the activists. Well, that's a very powerful story at the individual level. Do you think that can be translated to the national level? So, for example, when you think of the Jews as defining themselves in terms of the, the persecuted people, um, you know, from the, the exodus from Egypt, you know, slavery, uh, the, the Holocaust, the, uh, the ghettos, and so on, um, they... Uh, they have that narrative that defines them. What about the the Native Americans, Wounded Knee, and and all of the the, the persecutions, the 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 um, Scots and the clearances from the Highlands, the 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 uh, I don't know the, the the stories go on and on. How do you impose that kind of redefinition on a national level? I think it takes the one by one. I don't think there's a way through other than you know, starting the process with each other. You know, some people would say that as great and as powerful as the South African story was, it was certainly a national story, a convening of a National Truth Commission, that it, it, was, it moved too fast, that in some ways, you know, the emphasis on, through Bishop Tutu and others, of, you know, it is our duty to forgive, because there will be no future without forgiveness, that the people were, if you like, forced to forgive. So. You can't do that. And those, so those processes in schools, in communities, you can't preempt it because people have to go through the experience. But maybe I sound like the long road to, to get to the social transformation. I think there are lots of ways in which people are listening to each other and dialoguing with each other more and more. Is this where the, ident the, the role of mystical connection comes in, where you um, develop that ability to connect to source and then you start to develop a new perspective of yourself as a cosmic citizen, as connected to each other? Yes, that when you go inward, seeking that source of your own being, something happens on the way. And it's the thing that happens is that sense of union and communion and the beginning of the knowing of how it is all connected and in the book, you know, I talk about the new science of this, the new neurosciences, the new psychology of this. All of these streams of knowing are reinforcing the fact that we are one, we are interconnected, we are interdependent. 
You can say that as a concept, and you can say it really well as a concept. You need to go that journey with those who have taken the journey before you, with those who have experienced the, one, the state of oneness. And it's in the presence, again, see how I'm out of the intellectual conceptual realm for a moment and I'm saying here again on the spiritual path it is meeting those who have tasted the reality who know it not those who speak eloquently about it but those who in the very substance of their being radiate the energy of love and unity and once, once that unity is experienced you have a new map of reality, a new way of saying and seeing the world. You know, my mother, in her own way, without all of the complexity of going into cosmology and new science, would say, of anyone or any, any situation, there but for the grace of God go I. That's a very deep knowing. And you say, there but for the grace of God go I. Because you're acknowledging that that could be you, that is you in a certain form. My mother used to also say, you know, you're as great to me as a little boy. She would say, you're as great as any man who ever walked the face of this earth. Wow, what a thing to... Puff up the confidence of a little boy. <laughs> then she'd say, but you are no better than the man who takes away our trash. And mm -hmm. there again, that sense of unity. You're as great as anyone, but you're no better. There's mm -hmm. no lesser. So, but getting to these states requires the serious work of destroying the illusion of separation, the ego's desire to make itself totally unique and, and to stay in control. And so that surrendering of the ego is mighty, mighty work that can, in a sense, only be fully accomplished in that mystical state of love and communion. So, you quote the Dalai Lama saying that it's not enough to be compassionate, that one must act. And it, most activists keep their passion burning by this sense of us versus them. And how do we move from that uh, polarity, that activist polarity, to a sense of empathy and collective healing. I, I think the activism is definitely changing from that polarity. I think that polarity exists. But for many years, I've seen now uh, the emergence of some people call conscious activism or sacred activism or subtle activism. In some way, 
of conjoining the inner world with the outer. And that polarity can only be transcended when we really surrender our personal ego. And I've seen it, you know, in, in sort of subtle ways influence activists who feel that maybe they have the best way forward for the world. And it comes from that passion, as you said. But it becomes a kind of addiction to being right. So that addiction to being right, something both the mystic and the active have to acquire. I call this the state of equipoise equipoise and balance but it's a dynamic balance it isn't just you know, a simple form of balance you know, visualize a tightrope walker going out over a very deep deep chasm and, and the balance that is needed to move across that chasm that's the sense of the dynamic balance that is needed in order to reach the state of non-polarization. Mm. And I think when we really understand the nature of love, we understand that love is non-dual. This may be a word or a concept familiar to some, but not to others. But it's non-dual really means non-polarized, you know. That love, in its essence, cannot be a partisan of the part. And we have so many images of love as, as being selective, you know, I love you, but you don't love me, sort of equation. But the true nature of love is that its substance is connected, it is whole, it's not about me and you, it's about the resonance of connection and wholeness between us. And I quote Mayor Baba who says, you know, love is the only force in the universe that is not in any way sub itself subject to coercion. You can't force love on someone. You can't force love. You can't push love onto someone. But because it has this nature that it can never be coerced, that it is free and it is from the state of unity, it will, and it connects with, with one person to another person. His image is that it will freely start to spread amongst humanity until humanity lights up with love. Great mystics have seen this, not just Mayor Baba, Teilhard de Chardin, who saw the whole, the whole planet at some point reaching into the Christ consciousness, the light is inherent in the universe. All mystics know that light is both love and knowledge combined. And the universe is filled with light, and the darkness doesn't understand it, of course. 
The light shineth, but the darkness knoweth not. But it's that light that offers itself completely vulnerably to be one with it. And I'm speaking as a mystic now, but we have to understand that when we speak of these things, we must be speaking from the place of having tasted and having known, not just knowing the concept. That's why the whole chapter is uh, meeting spiritual masters and teachers. It was really through them and their highly accomplished state of being, their deeply unitive states of being, that I tasted the reality of the oneness with love. The divine spark entered into me in a way that it animated and integrated my being. Am I getting too mystical for you? Oh, you haven't begun to be too mystical for me. I... I really think that this is one of the most important interviews I've ever conducted because your book, for me, describes the foundational challenges of our civilization if we're to survive and thrive. Are you optimistic that we will succeed? Yes, I am. And, you know, I I think that's my, my code, in a sense. Is, is optimism. I share the, you know, you may remember I share my birth story that I was conceived on November 10th. And my sister, who was coming to her 11th year, fell down the steps at school, broke her spine, and died on November the 11th. And it was in the morning for her beautiful first daughter that my mother discovered that she was pregnant and then they realized when I must have been conceived and so I was conceived inside a story of wounding, of loss, of pain I literally think that part of my journey was to try to reach towards her suffering heart as I evolved through her pain and her story was to give me was to feel the new life in me and to give her best love to that new life. And so when I am born, my mother celebrates. She says, this is the end of the period of mourning. And let's now celebrate the new life. Mm. I think it's my fractal to say, as terrible, as dark as it gets, and my, have I seen the pain and the cruelty and the darkness and the wretched aspects of egoic behavior on this planet. But I have also one who has witnessed that that is not the end of the story. The, the story is only complete when that story of universal love, universal responsibility, universal rights when they all come into conjunction well if reader listeners if you are looking for a book for your next book club or a book to just gather together and and read and and discuss 
or simply savor on your own. I can't recommend highly enough The Conscious Activist Where Activism Meets Mysticism by James O'Day. James, uh, what website can people find out more about your activities? They can go to jamesod.com. That's jamesode.com. I do apologize for having mispronounced it all this time. Uh, you know, a lot of Americans do pronounce it O'Day, but if you go to Ireland, they pronounce it O.D. <laughs> Very good. P-A and D-A and S-A. So is your website with or without an apostrophe? There's no apostrophe, jamesod.com. jamesod.com. The Conscious Activist. Um, you know, one of the things that your book called for was um, uh, this conscious awakening, and it is very much reflected in the stories in my book, What Wags the World, Tales of Conscious Awakening. And I um, I guess I just couldn't resist putting a plug for it in here. Um, but it... Um, it just resonates so much with all that you describe. So I, I hope our listeners will join us next week. Um, and uh, I do appreciate your being with us today. Dr. James O.D., um, author of The Conscious Activist, thank you so much. Thank you for a profound interview. Bye-bye now. Goodbye. Well, I do hope you'll join us next time when our guest will be Joel Fotinos. And, of course, do visit our website, ncreview.com, for this and other interviews, books, reviews, and so on. Thank you very much for listening. This is Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Have a blessed week. Goodbye.